0: You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura Podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. My name is Deanne, and I have the privilege of serving in kids' ministry and as a community group leader, along with my husband. And today's scripture is from the book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 8 through 14 from the NIV, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Xenius the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Deanne. We are in the final two weeks of our series through the New Testament book of Titus that we've been calling a faithful presence. And as you know, if you've been with us, we've been exploring what it means, what it looks like to be a faithful representation of Jesus Christ in every sphere of life, from the most intimate in your home and your friendships, to the church, and also out in the world. But as we come towards the end, we are reminded that this is something we do together in community, It is absolutely vital. A faithful presence is not a solo effort. It is a community project. But like anything done with any other humans, there can be some bumps along the road. And so this passage is perfect to equip you and I to be a community of devotion. Let's pray together. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us and to transform us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Through Jesus Christ, your son, you have not only brought us to yourself, but you have placed us within a family. You've placed us in a community. You've given us a, a job and a mission, not only as individuals, but as a people. You've also shown us in your word, Lord, that this community life does not come without difficulties and oftentimes hardship and even division but you've provided the resources for us to endure it in a way that we can all grow more and more like Christ. So I pray that today you would remind us, that you would teach us, that you would transform us, that we'd make decisions today in light of your word. And for those who do not yet know you, that they would put their faith and trust in Christ and belong to you and to your people. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. In 1997, a teacher named Gary McPherson studied 157 randomly selected children as they picked out and learned a musical instrument. Some of them went on to become fine musicians, while others faltered. McPherson searched for the traits that separated those who progressed and from those who did not. It was not IQ. That wasn't a good predictor. Neither was it their oral sensitivity or their math skills or their upbringing or their income or even their sense of rhythm. The best single predictor was the question he had asked the students before they even selected their instrument. And the question was this. How long do you think you will play? That was the question he asked the children before they ever chose their instrument. How long do you think you will play? The students who planned to play for a short time did not become proficient. But in contrast, the children who planned from day one to play for years had success. It was the children who, in effect, said, I want to be a musician. I'm going to play my whole life. In other words, the best predictor was devotion. I raise that because I want us to think in light of our community life, in light of the church, What is, in your mind, the best predictor of strong relationships and community? Is it having the same cultural background? Is it having the same income? Is it having the same education? The same personalities? The same likes and dislikes? Of course not. The best predictor of a strong community is devotion. And that's the very word that Paul uses here in Titus chapter 3. If we are going to be a faithful presence for Christ in such a time as this, amongst our friends and family, in the church, and out in the culture, it is going to require devotion. But devotion to what? That's the question I want us to be thinking about this morning. See, Paul the Apostle, the author of this letter, is writing to a first-century church planter named Titus who was leading a church in a very cosmopolitan city on the island of Crete. And we've been reading over their shoulder, as it were, for the past three months. And as we've done so, Paul's call is clear. We're called to be a faithful presence, but we're to do it together as a community. Now, I don't know about you, but I've noticed in my own life and amongst my experience of the church that most people, when they think of their church involvement, they go through cycles of passion and passivity. Some of you are really excited to be involved in the church right now. You're like, oh my gosh, Reality Ventura! I signed up for eight community groups, I'm on three serving teams, you know, I go to first and second service and I just love it! I just love being with my brothers and sisters! And then next to you is no doubt a Christian who in response says, aren't you adorable? (laughs) I remember the time when I was excited to be at church. I remember when I used to be enthusiastic about seeing other Christians 12 years ago. Oh, yeah. Mark my words. You'll become jaded like me in just a few years. (laughs) I don't want to, I just ignore all the Sunday announcements. I don't even engage. If you're anything like me, you've gone through these cycles of passion. You're all in and you're excited to passivity. And maybe some of that passivity is due to past hurt, disappointment, unexpected challenges and hardships within the church, difficult people. And some of you might be at the point, you're like, no, I'm just gonna kind of be on the fringe. I would like to suggest, if that's you, that that is a good thing because it means that you are on the verge of discovering what devotion is truly all about. And so I would like for all of us to do this. In your mind and in your heart, take an inventory right now. What determines whether you'll stay or go from the church? In your mind and in your heart, think to yourself, what will determine whether I join or whether I leave. Now there are some very obvious fundamental reasons, like are they preaching the Bible, are they preaching Christ, of course. But what about the more relational things? What about the the different things going on in the church? Take an honest inventory of what will determine whether or not you will stay or whether you will leave. I suggest this, I think it's important. A lot of people come up to me and they're like, (laughs) it's a funny question, they're like, so why should I join Reality Ventura? (laughs) I'm like, it's so awkward, like, we have a great website, have you seen our kids' ministry? It's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, what other church has tacos and trivia, am I right? <laughs> like, it's so awkward, like, like, what am I supposed to say? I could respond with some exciting things. Like, oh, have you, have you seen this, or did you know that we offer that? Have you downloaded the Church Center app? But you know what? Over the years, I've actually done almost the opposite. When someone's like, hey, why should I join the church? I'm like, well, our vision is that you learn to die to yourself, pick up your cross, follow after Jesus, sacrifice your life, and invest in the kingdom of God that is bigger than your life and that you'll never regret as you lay down your life for the sake of other people and hear the words of Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. So if you want to sign up, church center apps online, you know, <laughs> join, join a community group or whatever, and die together as people who pick up their cross and follow after Jesus. That, that's the vision. That is the vision. It's so counterintuitive in so many ways, because it goes against our consumer culture, and, f- and yet, what I've just described is precisely what the New Testament teaches. So, are you having a hard time in community? Good that means you're ready to discover what devotion is all about. If I could put it in a phrase as we dive in, it would be this. A community that takes seriously the call to devotion is a community that can flourish anywhere and endure anything. That gospel resilience that God puts in and creates among his people as they devote themselves. But how does this become possible? And what are we devoting ourselves to? What are the ingredients? I wanna highlight three, three aspects of devotion from Titus three, and we're gonna look just at verses eight through 11. And the first is probably the most obvious, and yet it is the most important. We must be devoted to God. We must devote ourselves to God. Now, Paul has just flooded us in Titus 3 with rich descriptions of divine power, and then he applies this to his instruction about devotion. Look at the beginning of verse 8 of Titus 3. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God May be careful to devote themselves. Think about what Paul's doing here. He summarizes all that he's been teaching, all the practical lessons, with a call to emphasize the importance of being devoted. But what kind of person can become devoted? What is it going to take? What kind of personality trait do I need to have? What kind of special talent or ability do I need to have to become a devoted person? Notice he doesn't address any of your personality traits or your natural ability. He says in verse 8, those who have trusted in God. That's how you can become a devoted person to others within the church and beyond is if you have first trusted in God. And here's why. Because in order for you to change and for us to be changed in community, you need nothing less than the almighty transformative power of God. It's actually quite shocking because some of you might say, really? I mean, the power of God, like almighty God? Like, I mean... Why would I really need that if all you're asking me to do is like sign up for a community group and like serve the kids as they're begging me to do every Sunday? You know, like why do I need the power of God? Oh, you do. Trust me. Because it takes far more change than you think, both within your life and within the lives of others. I can't help but to think of of the house that my wife And I lived in in Los Angeles for years as an example. It was this old house, 100 years old, classic like L.A. house. And everything on the surface was great. We're like, oh, my gosh, it's so cute. You know, ah, classic house. And then all of a sudden, within the first few months after purchasing the house, the back door started sticking. It's like, oh, that's weird. You know, just kind of kind of push it in. No problem. Old house. But it got worse. No problem, I said to myself. Just a little weather stripping issue. I can fix that easily. So I kind of, you know, navigate my way through the the handyman universe or whatever, and I'm just changing the weather stripping and like, yeah, no problem. Okay, got it. Another month later, oh, it's sticking some more. This is weird. I don't understand. So we had to call out an inspector, and the inspector is looking at everything. And then he says to me, can I look underneath the house? I so, was sure, weird. Like, why would you need to look underneath the house? Like it's the door. It's the door, the frame, weather stripping. Hello, why am I paying you? It's <laughs> like, so, let me look under the house. And lo and behold, to my chagrin, as he goes underneath the house, our entire concrete foundation that was holding up the house on our little hill was completely cracked. And the whole thing was sinking at the back. And it costs a lot of time and money, and you don't want to hear that part, but it was terrible. But in so many ways, as I was going through that process, it was as if the Holy Spirit said, Tim, this is a picture of your life. Do we all need change? Sure, just a little weather stripping. I know the rough edges of my character need a little softening. No problem. Nothing a little prayer meeting won't take care of. And the Holy Spirit's like, the whole foundation is utterly cracked we're going to have to call out the big guns for this one. You're like, no, surely you're talking about someone else. But friends, you need nothing less than the almighty power of God to change you from the inside out. Why does God have to do so much? Because the challenge is so great and the need is that deep. So whenever you think about your transformation in community life, and you think just a little touch up here and there, God brings all the power of heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because it's going to take nothing less than to change you. And one of the ways in which you become aware of how much change you really need is found in, guess what? Community with other people. For those of you who think you need very little change, it's usually because you're not really involved in the lives of other people. (laughs) I know people who live very isolated lives in solitude and they're like, yeah, I'm pretty holy. And I'm like, do you ever hang out with anyone? They're like, no. Just read my Bible, pray, and stay by myself. I'm like, oh, well. Why don't you come into community and then you will see or get married. Both ways will reveal (laughs) to you the depth of your need. Can I get an amen from the married folks in the room? See, when you make a commitment to such people, few things make you aware of your need for God's power like real and raw community. Because it is there that you are not only confronted with their brokenness and their need for change, but your brokenness and your need for change. And making a commitment to such people will make you aware of the depth of your need but you can rejoice that God has met your need as you learn to trust in him. See, the Bible doesn't say be devoted as long as it's easy, but be devoted because it's not easy. So if you want to see transformation in your life and in your community, you need to recognize that you need divine resources. We are devoted first to God. It's gonna take nothing less than the power of God to change us from the inside out, and community life will reveal that. If you disagree, then you vastly underestimate the task. A community of devotion is first devoted to God. But secondly, as a result, we are devoted to what is good. We're devoted to God, and we're devoted to good. So what will happen? if we actually apply Paul's instructions and rely on God's power? Well, if we are devoted to God, we will inevitably become devoted to what is good. So look at verse 8, but now the full sentence. This is a trustworthy saying, Paul says, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. We are to be a people who are devoted to the common good of the church and to the common good outside of the church. We're to do good to all. There's two ways in which this doing good applies, and I want us to think practically about them both. So first, let's think about the context of the church. We are to do good and to devote ourselves to doing good to others in the church. That is a conscious decision that we all need to make. And it's one in which I wonder if people have made in their own hearts. See, oftentimes people show up to church like, hey, I'm just gonna receive, I'm gonna observe, I'm gonna remain on the fringe, but I'm not actually gonna engage. If that's you, Scripture calls you to make a decision, a commitment in your heart, say, I'm gonna devote myself to these people. I'm gonna devote myself to the work of the church. I'm gonna be all in. And there are many reasons why that's important. But let me give you one reason why it's essential. If you aren't actively devoting yourselves to do what is good to others in this church, you will naturally be devoted to serving yourself. Because the default state of our heart, because we're all fallen in sin, the factory settings, if you will, is self-service and self-interest. If you're not devoted to serving others, you will naturally become devoted to serving yourself. And so you'll participate in church until things become difficult until you hit a wall. And in that moment, you will be tempted to remove your presence from the church. I am often shocked by how quickly people raise the white flag when it comes to community life in the church. They show up, they're all excited, like, oh my gosh, I just signed up. It's going to be great. And then you show up to your first community group, for example, and you're like, oh, oh. What? I didn't. I don't really picture these people. Like if I made a list of like my ideal Christian community, I mean, uh, I wouldn't have chosen these people. And so you're out. It's like, wait a minute, are you devoted to the church or are you devoted to yourself? It's a question everyone needs to ask when you think about being a follower of Jesus and functioning in the church. If you are truly being changed by God, you will devote yourselves to doing good to others. If you're truly devoted to yourself, you will peace out at the first difficulty. And the result is that you will become a person who is shaped by complaint and convenience rather than compassion and conviction. If you continue to just just pull yourself out of any kind of involvement the minute it gets hard and you complain about it, you're like, I don't like those people, I didn't like this, I didn't like how that, particular church event was like managed, you know, they, they didn't fully use all the features of church center in the way that they could. Like, I, I just can't handle this. And so I'm out. You will become a person who is shaped over time by complaint and by convenience. That's the type of person you will become. But what the Holy Spirit wants to do in you is shape you into a person who is shaped by compassion, where you look to the needs of others and a conviction Like if I belong to Jesus Christ and I belong to the church and I'm gonna live like it and serve like it. We are to devote ourselves. If you wanna grow, if you wanna be faithful, if you're truly being changed by God, it will result in devotion to doing what is good to those around you. I love the way that the book of Hebrews puts it. It's so practical when it talks about community life and the temptation to give up. The author writes in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, make note, he says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day, that is the return of Jesus Christ, approaching. Notice briefly the four elements to that charge there. First, consider one another. It means you put yourself in the shoes of other people. You look around and and you give thought and attention to them. Like, man, these people, okay, there's need around there. I'm considering them. And then there's that beautiful word, exhort. Let us consider one another in order to stir up, is the way the NIV puts it. Exhort or stir up, which is a word for a sharp encouragement which was actually a military term used when a soldier was on the front line and they needed extra help, they would exhort their fellow soldier like, hey, I'm under fire here. I'm I'm down in the trenches by myself. I'm going to exhort my fellow soldier to come alongside because I can't do this alone. That's the vibe we're to have in the church. So when you ask about someone's involvement and they haven't really been engaged with the life of the church, exhort them like, hey, we're on the front lines. We need you. Side by side, consider one another, exhort one another. Why? To stir up love and good works. In community, a community of devotion, we're reminded that it's not about being lovers of ourselves. It's about loving what is good and what is right and what is holy and committing ourselves to do good works and that we continue to assemble ourselves together, not forsaking the assembling as some people do. I'm not going to go to this. I'm not going to go to that. I'm not going to see those people. What a powerful encouragement for you and for me. It is vital that we are devoted to the good of the church. Have you made that decision? Are you devoted? But of course, this also applies to those who are outside of the church. The common good of all. As Paul noted earlier in Titus chapter 3 that we are to function as good citizens. He references the way in which we live in culture. So leaders like Titus, they are to prepare anyone who believes and follows Jesus to think through all the implications of their faith as it relates to the common good of all people. And I love the phrase that Paul uses here, give careful thought. It means you actually sit down in the busyness of your life and you actually think about it. You're like, wait a minute. How can I do good? How can I be devoted to doing what is good to people outside the church? It's interesting because many of us in this room, if we're honest, we put a lot of careful thought into our careers, into our jobs. You're like, well, okay, if I work here for a few years, then I can maybe transfer to this company. I can make such and such money. Those of you who are in school or you're younger, you're thinking about school, you're like thinking through it. You're giving careful thought. You're like, oh, I wanna go to this school. I wanna get this degree. Like, we put a lot of thought and effort and attention to a lot of different aspects of our lives And what Paul is saying here is that you need to give that same kind of thought into the way in which you do good to other people, so much so that it radically shapes your life. There are many great examples of this in scripture. There are also good examples throughout church history. And one of them that has always stood out is a man named William Wilberforce, who many of you may know, because he's gone down in history as leading the campaign in England to abolish slavery in the 1800s. He dedicated over 40 years of his life to this. But not only this, he also sought to relieve the suffering of the overworked poor and provide help for refugees. If you read his biography, you'll learn that he donated to over 70 religious organizations, and history records him it has being active in numerous reform movements, which included reform in hospital care, fever institutions, asylums, infirmaries, amongst refugees and penitentiaries. Now, some of you are like, wow, that's a lot. Like, I only donate to 63 charitable organizations. You know, some of the, the, the way to read historic Christian biographies, by the way, is not to compare yourself to them and their particular works, but to be inspired by their faith. Okay, not everyone is called to do the same thing. Not all of you are going to even have the time or the resources to do all that. But what I've noticed, which often left out in their biographies, is all the other men and women in their lives who loved them and prayed for them and supported them and encouraged them. The missing piece in a lot of those biographies is that they could not have done those things apart from Christian community. They prayed for one another. They shared their struggles. They helped one another. And William Wilberforce was part of a Christian community that included all kinds of different people. And some of them, their names will never appear in a Christian biography. But you know where their name will appear? In the book of life. Because according to Jesus, it doesn't matter what makes the headlines to humans, it's whether your name is written in heaven. And No matter what you do, whatever God gives you, whether it's a lot of money or or little money, whether it's a lot of talent or a specific talent, whether it's a family or to live in singleness, you simply be faithful with what you're called to do and with what God has given you to commit to doing good and when you breathe your last and stand before Jesus Christ, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. All that matters is that your name is in his book will you be devoted yes i can get an amen every one of us should be encouraged to that but where i'm inspired by william wilberforce is not that i'm going to go compare and see how many donations i can make or charities i can get involved in i'm inspired by the fact that he gave careful thought to devoting himself to do what is good All of us need a strong sense of responsibility when we think through the implications of our faith. God, where have you put me? Where where do I live? What part of Ventura County do I I live in? Who's around me in my place of work? Or maybe your kids go to school. Maybe you're attending school. Whatever it might be, look around you. I often view even our, our church, when I think of our community groups, I see them as like gospel outposts. I look at Ventura County, I'm like, oh, we have outposts in Camarillo, and we have outposts in in East Ventura. Like These are all strategic places where the people of God, if they devote themselves to doing what is good, they can be great and effective witnesses for God. Strategizing together, helping one another think through gospel opportunities, where we live and where we work. Paul says this is excellent and profitable for all people. A beautiful display of good deeds displays our good and beautiful God. Are you devoted to this? Devoted to doing good within the church? Have you made that decision? Or are you living on the fringes? Have you made that decision to devote yourself to doing good to those outside of the church, understanding that this is what God calls me to do? And we're to do it together. We're to do it as a family. But having said that, There will always be challenges along the way. And naturally, like any family, that comes with some drama. I'm often surprised when people come to church and they experience some difficulties. And what I mean by difficulties is difficult people. And they come to me and they're like, but I thought the church was a family. And I'm like, yeah did you have a family? Like I have a brother, and we beat each other up every single day. And that's only a mild exaggeration. (laughs) Like, here's the deal. It's not always gonna be pretty. Sometimes it's gonna be messy. And so the third mark of a community of devotion is that we are devoted to the truth. Because sometimes there will be drama. Sometimes there will be division. In fact, so great is this knowledge of the unity that we have in God that we must avoid and address whatever would disrupt that unity. Division within the church results in people who are confused, angry, and often wounded. So Paul's instructions show us two things that can kill community, a community of devotion, and he also shows us the way we're supposed to deal with it. So look at what he says in verses 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogy and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. So what is it that can disrupt a community of devotion? He says two things, divisive issues and divisive people. Those are two things that can kill a community of devotion. So Paul addresses it because he doesn't want us to be surprised by it, but he also shows us what to do about it. So let's think about that. He's not saying to avoid all controversy because there are such things as worthy controversies. After all, Jesus Christ was just a little bit controversial. There was disagreements among the religious leaders of his his day, like he claimed to be God, he was God, but they're like, no, this can't be, and Jesus fully engages in that. There are worthy controversies and debates to be had. And those center around what we call essential matters, or what I like to call gospel issues. Things that are worth debating are the truths that we divide for and divide for. We're saying like, Jesus Christ, he's the son of God. He's the only way of salvation. The Bible is the word of God. The Holy Spirit is present and active in every believer, so on and so forth. Those are all essential truths. The problem is, people start debating about secondary matters as if they were primary matters and they die on those hills. Divisive issues. So what does Paul say? He says avoid foolish controversies. That is, arguments over matters of secondary importance based on speculation. And so he gives two examples amongst the Jewish community of believers. One is the genealogies. Those who are debating in the first century about family status and the meaning of the genealogy as it pertains to them and their standing in the church and also debates about non-essential minutia about the law. Now there are many modern examples of this, but I suppose one of them would be a speculation about all the particular details about end times events. You know what I'm talking about? Like the websites that use like clip art and they have like a doomsday calendar and like a a clock that's because they found a code that tells you the exact day when Jesus Christ will return because they did like old, old testament algebra even though Jesus said no one knows the day in which he will come back right it's in the bible and yet they argue it as if it's like the main issue and they will leave or attend church based on this like tertiary issue and they will feel more spiritual because they do Uh (laughs) uh-oh, why is the pastor talking about this? Because it needs to be said. Divisive issue. This is a non-essential matter, and you think you're being more spiritual because you're debating it. It says avoid foolish controversies, things we can't know, but also avoid divisive people. There are times when you have to divide, but there are some people who love to divide. Divide. Those are two different things. There are some times when you have to divide. Like, hey, this is a gospel issue. I need to separate myself from that person. But there are some people who love to divide. They just want to stir it up. And so Paul says this needs to be confronted. Personal confrontation is required. So for those of you who are conflict avoidant, welcome to the New Testament. You will grow. Don't worry. And for those of you who love conflict, you need to know that it's to be done with love and patience. See, some of you are like, I love conflict. My adrenaline gets going and I feel so righteous. Okay, settle down. Notice how Paul tells us to address a divisive person. Notice the patience. He says in verse 10, warn a divisive person once. Warn them. Then... Warn them a second time. If they continue and they don't respond and don't receive correction, warn them a second time. This is a process that denotes patience. After that, he says, have nothing to do with them. Because you may be sure, verse 11, that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. If a person within the church is divisive and they're dividing people, they need to be corrected patiently, several times. But after that, if they refuse this repeated correction, this divisive person actually participates in their own condemnation, and they are without excuse. They're self-condemned. Paul says, have nothing to do with them. Now, this is important because it means separating yourself from them as the New Testament addresses in other places. And your refusal to have fellowship with them because they're dividing the body of Christ is meant to act like a smelling salt for someone who is sleepwalking. It's meant to wake them up. Their removal of fellowship is meant to be sobering to them. And they can complain all they want. You guys kicked me out. Like, no, we were responding to your decision to divide people, and it's not loving to allow you to hurt people and to divide people, and so we're responding to your foolish choices by having nothing to do with you. Paul says they are self-condemned. This is important because it's meant to wake them up that they one day might come to their senses and realize that what they're doing is sinful and foolish and wake up. And they need other people to help them see that. Because listen, friends, the sins that are most likely to destroy you are the sins that you are least likely to notice on your own. The sins that are most likely to destroy you are the sins that you are least likely to see on your own without community and without help. Paul says, this is a part of community. It is our devotion to the truth and to the love of Christ that enables us to face such difficulties when they arise, and they will. I say this because a lot of people's perception of the Christian church is like, there's going to be no drama here. It's all going to be great. It's all going to be fine. There are some people who, who come to church and they think that, Reality Ventura, for example, is just this group of perfect or 98.9% sanctified Christians who are there to serve all of your needs at your ever-beckoning call. Some of you right now are like, oh wait, what? That's not? That's why I'm here. And as much as we should come to expect love and service in the Christian community, we should also be as equally prepared to deal with suffering, hardship, and yes, drama. So put to death the utopian illusion that you have about church and come to the New Testament, which is radically realistic. I'm reminded of this when I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Christian pastor in Germany during World War II. He was persecuted by the Nazis and wrote an excellent, timeless book, on Christian community. And he uses the word illusion and disillusion about Christians who have this like, idea in their head, like, I'm gonna come to church, I'm gonna join a group, and we're all gonna be best friends forever, and we will never fight. Here's what Dietrich has to say about that. He says, the sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Oh, spicy, Dietrich. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later, it will collapse. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Listen, church, you will be let down. You will be disappointed. There are times that you will be sinned against in this church. And yet, even on those occasions, rather than obstacles for your growth, they become opportunities for your growth because those are the moments you can lean into the gospel of Jesus Christ, both for yourself and for the other party. And so Bonhoeffer continues by saying this. Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God and Jesus Christ? Thus, the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes incomparably helpful because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ other people when they're being divisive or problematic or dramatic or whatever it is they may or may not choose to repent but you have a choice as to what to do in that moment when community life becomes hard see Bonhoeffer believed what scripture says that a devoted community is built on a devoted God and Paul himself learned the hard way Paul didn't live in some ivory tower, free from the daily complications of Christian community. In fact, in his second letter to young Pastor Timothy, he describes a time in which he was abandoned by Christians. He says, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. Some of you are like, oh yeah, I've written that email before. (laughs) I understand it. But did you include the last sentence? May it not be held against them? Oh, that's a little different. Some of us like, "Oh, I've been deserted, I've been abandoned. Didn't these other Christians in my community group know I was suffering? Where were they? And yet Paul says, "May it not be held against them." How could Paul say this? He'd been abandoned by his own Christian. Brothers and sisters, so how could he come to the place where he says, may it not be held against him? The next verse tells us why. But the Lord stood with me, he says. I'm looking at all of this through the lens of Jesus Christ. He stood with me at my side and gave me strength. See, only community built on Christ can have this kind of devotion. The only way in which we can be devoted to one another in spite of the hardships and the difficulties and all the ups and downs is if you know that Christ is radically devoted to you. And when you look to the cross, you see that he absolutely is. He was so devoted to you that he literally died for you in your place, for your sins and rose again to give you new life forever. This friends is what binds us together. They say a community is shaped by a common experience, especially if you study communities that have gone through suffering like war or great disaster. The men and women who make it through, it's like they're friends forever. Why? Because they went through a life and death experience. Well, Christians, we've all gone through that because the Bible tells us that we were all dead in our sins and trespasses, doomed to be separated from God for all eternity in hell. And yet Jesus Christ came and he saved us and we put our faith in Jesus and we are all raised to new life in Christ. So the reason we can have fellowship, the reason we can endure one another's drama and it's there, believe me, the reason we can push through and grow through it on our way to glory is because all of us have shared a bond that is deeper and stronger than blood. We've all shared a life and death experience through Jesus Christ. We were dead in sin and now we're alive in Christ. We build on that truth. We're devoted to that truth, and that's what makes us devoted to one another. So let us pray that decisions would be made today